Good morning, beloved. I'm uh, Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. Um, I want to welcome those who are joining us online. And uh, just uh, one thing uh, before I begin, uh, your new weekly is here. And it's in your, uh, not weekly, but Bible adult reading plan. And so that'll start uh, on March 2nd. And you can go ahead and get fed on that and also utilize that in preparation for life groups. And I want to encourage you uh, to get into a life group to deepen your faith. Today, we are going to examine a wonderful story from the book of Esther. The story of Esther is filled with power, deception, potential genocide, but also romance and influence, opportunity, providence, and above all, sacrificial love. The year is 479 B.C., still 400-plus years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And Xerxes is the mighty king of the Persian Empire at that time. And so this book begins with Queen Vashti refusing to obey King Xerxes. And subsequently, she is banded from his sight, and Xerxes begins trying to find a new queen. And so he sends out this decree to hold a beauty contest, and Esther is a young Jewish woman. And she becomes a part of that contest. Eventually, he chooses Esther to be his queen. Now, King Xerxes does not know that she's a Jew. Remember that. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, is also a Jew. And he has risen to become a prominent, prominent leader in that Persian government. And Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal her Jewish heritage to anyone. And so, because you see that God is working in that secret, behind the scenes, and God is in that story, and you'll see that soon. At the same time, there's this guy who has risen to the role of prime minister of Persia, and his name is Haman. And Haman has it out for the Jews. Why? Well, Scripture doesn't really tell us, but in the Jewish tradition, it's suggested that he is from the offspring of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, or the once king. And if you recall a few months ago, uh, the Israel, we, as we study through the story, the Amalekites were once nations who were trying to keep Israel out of the promised land. And God asked Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekite people for their extreme evil. They would do child sacrifices and they would try to stop Israel from entering into that promised land. And so Saul did wipe out everyone except the king of that nation, the Amalekites. And now years later, offspring are back at it again, and we see the possibility that Haman was a part of this ancestry, and so he had a hatred of the Jews. So he uses his position to get the king to sign an irrevocable decree to have the Jews ex executed or extinguished. And the people throughout the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire are given permission, listen to this, to kill a Jewish family and take all their possessions legally. And so the date of this horrific event is set for Adar 13, 
on the Jewish calendar, which is on our calendar around the second week of March. And so three months into this decree, and with only nine months to go, Mordecai sends word to Queen Esther that she must go before the king and plead for mercy for her people before it's too late. And so Esther reminds her cousin Mordecai that it's not simple to do, to pull this off and request this of the king. And here is why. Esther, beginning, uh, or Esther 4, beginning with verse 11. Take a look at this. All of the king's officials and people of royal providence know that for any man or woman to approach the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they should be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. And she's telling Mordecai this. There's been 30 days. This has passed since I was called to go to that king. And so she had to be summoned. And she's running, or the Jews are running out of time. If she just entered his presence without being summoned, she could be punished, stripped of her crown, or even killed. And we see Xerxes is a pretty powerful, and he doesn't cut, he doesn't really, you know, he, he doesn't care for, you know, this type of uh, things invading his power. But he, if he does extend that gold scepter, she can come. And so, for the record, <laughs> with that scepter, I, I <laughs> maybe you're wondering, Kimberly does not have to be summoned into my presence. I don't even have a golden scepter. In fact, I married up. She's awesome, and I think... She would have to summon me. <laughs> so anyway, and oh my gosh, she's sitting right over there. So. Erase tape, guys, erase tape. But here's the point. God is working behind the scenes and made this beautiful queen, Esther, as an influencer in a very bleak situation. You see, folks, God has placed you in a position of influence. Esther and Mordecai used their influence, and so did Haman. Folks, you are an influencer. Esther and Mordecai, influence for good and right and justice. Haman, deception, vengeance. I want you to say that in your mind to yourself. Put your name there. You are an influence. Why? Because you, when you are filled with the influence of the Holy Spirit, God's influence becomes an auto-influence in your lives. Acts 17.26 tells us that God appointed us for this exact time in history and this exact place for you to live. He has given you a sphere of influence already. And for some of you, he is preparing you for that. Think about that. And maybe how that proceeds a very difficult, maybe tough season in your life and how that maybe it will expand your platform in that time especially in your relationship with Jesus Christ God this did this with David we see it his influence was limited to a small flock but then it grew God had in mind for him to be a shepherd and the king of all Israel and he prepared he prepared him for that and we see that. Maybe we think of our influence as small, but it will increase and increase and increase. You see, God wants to expand that platform so that God's values can be administered or 
you know, sweep out from us to this world that needs positive, good, and right, and just influence. And that can happen in big ways and small ways, my friends. For some of you, you're still in preparation for your greatest position of influence. And we have to prepare well, my friend. It's said that whenever St. Paul, uh, whenever St. Paul went, and wherever he went, he started a revival or a riot. And most of the time it was both. And Paul uh, went to Thessalonica, a large city of about 200,000 people at the tip of the Aegean Sea. And Acts 17 tells us that Paul and Silas began to share Christ in the local synagogues. And some of the Jews and Gentiles, they were converted. And within three weeks, riots started ensuing. And leaders at that synagogue brought Paul and Silas before the local magistrates. And here's what they said about them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Turn the world upside down. These men have turned the world upside down with their influence. Today, more than a billion people call themselves Christians. And most of them are due, maybe directly or indirectly, to the, to the work of these two men. And that's influence. And you might be asking yourself, how do I increase my influence in this world? Well, I want to tell you, at the beginning of, of this year, we were given a card that has six habits on them. And you signed this card. I signed it. Right there, I, Jonathan Coleman, will work to grow as a disciple in striving to follow these six habits or the discipleship model. And you place that in that uh, offering plate. And a couple weeks ago, did, were you ready for it? Mark Rowland signed this thing. He just signed in hundreds of cards, and you got it back. And within these six habits, I believe it helps increase our influence. Spend time daily with God, first habit. You are influenced by the word of God. Share your faith, our influence to another person, perhaps an eternal influence upon their lives. Give generously of your resources. And so you are influencing the ministry and mission of Anderson Hills, and above all, and most importantly, the kingdom of God. Serve in ministry. You are influenced as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, meeting the physical, the spiritual, emotional, and the many, many needs of people who need that. Participate in a small group. Godly influence of each other as a small community of faith, spurring one another along in that growth through study. Worship of God. Praise and adoration. You ever notice how that, that influences you? It's amazing. Worship is always circular, too, that, that as we worship God, God's spirit permeates us. And like I say all the time, it's just that antiseptic that influences that just the holiness in us. And I love it. And it's an influence in worship. Our practice, godly habits, influence our lives, and it is a big deal. Our scope of influences broadens as we practice them. And individually, and like Esther and Mordecai, it truly benefits the existence of other people in amazing ways. I want to talk to you junior high and senior high students. You're going to school, and I think back 
of what school is now versus the 80s. <laughs> when I went to school, there's the 70s too. There's a lot of negative influence, guys, out there. Therefore, I think your fellow students desperately need your influence, your Christian influence. What you say and how you live your life has significant impact upon those around you. Turpin, Anderson, Nagel, and on and on. Do you come alongside fellow students who are maybe different or maybe sit alone in a cafeteria outside of some of those groupings? Or maybe for those who are being bullied. Teachers and administrators, your Christian influence can change the course of a young person's life. And it can also influence the educational systems around you in the school building in which you teach. When I was a student pastor, we had this spunky choir director named Joanne Bright. And Joanne Bright used to put a Bible on the corner of her desk throughout her whole career. And she would put that Bible there, <laughs> she's spunky, as a, a message to the public school system. There it is. And students would ask her questions, and she would give them Christian influence. And they would see that Bible, and she would always offer Christian advice. Parents, grandparents, you have unbelievable influence over those little human beings that you are raising. And it will determine, that influence will determine their faithful step and walk in their life. Esther changed the tra trajectory of her people. They were not massacred. People today are, are being massacred physically, but spiritually by these waves of negative influence. I think there's a lot of just spiritual hospices around. And we have the life. We, we have the cure. We have the influence through our lives as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we must see our influences can be administered through God's help, strength, and the courage that he can give unto us. And Mordecai sees this influence. And I, I believe he sees God at work in the whole scenario. And he sends back his response. What we're reading is correspondence between Esther and Mordecai. It says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back the answer. Do you not think that because you are the, in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But if you and your father's family will perish, and who knows? And look at this line. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for a time as this. What he's saying is, Esther, you have not come to this place of immense influence by accident. Could it be that God placed you here in advance for this special purpose? And this is heavy, heavy with providence. This sentence by Mordecai gives me full body shivers, chills. And, and who knows that you, that you have come to this royal position as a time such as this. And he sees Esther's influence and he sees her life-given opportunity to see, save her people. 
you know, as a person of influence, God will give you impacting opportunities. As United Methodists, our theology is steeped in the grace of God. And we proclaim that in various, various ways. And grace is that unmerited, unconditional love of God. And we believe that God's grace is always working in the background of people's lives, wooing people to come unto God. Our founder, John Wesley, he always assumed this when he spoke to people, maybe who were struggling in their faith in God. And he ministered to them with that thought in the back of his head. And I think we need to grab hold of that assumption as well as Christians. That God is constantly and loving, lovingly energetic in drawing people unto himself. And as people of influence, God will give us opportunities to impact lives. Not just once a week, man, but daily before us. And we either say yes or no to those opportunities. Etienne de Grelet. Oh, did it right. A Quaker missionary. She wrote this. Listen to this. I will pass this way but once if there's any good that I can do. Let me do it now, for I'll never pass this way again. I will see this day but once if there's any kindness I can show. Let me show it now, for I'll never see this day again. Tomorrow may be too late, my friend, to do all the good that you plan. So reach out to those in need and lend them a helping hand. I will know this world but once. If there's any love that I can give, let me give it now. Oh, Lord, please show me how. For I'll never know this world again. I'll never see this day. I will never pass this way again. And so, see that these opportunities, they spring forth. And even in the, what's sometimes the most bleakest circumstances and our, our trial can become a testimony and that opportunity comes to show people how to react to these things that happen on the human journey yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the miracle on ice you guys know what that is <laughs> yeah baby the miracle on ice was was a medal round during the men's hockey tournament in 1980 i remember and the winter, it was at the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. And the game was played between the hosting United States and four-time gold medalist, the Soviet Union. It was communists. And the Soviet Union had, had won the gold medal in five of its previous Winter Olympic Games. And they were the favorites, heavy favorites against everyone at Lake Placid. And the team, the Soviets, they, they, they were professional players. They were they were composed of that in international play. By contrast, the United States team was compromised mostly of amateur, amateur college players. In fact, a couple weeks before the miracle on ice on February 9th, 1980, the Soviets beat the United States 10 to 2. They wrecked them in an exhibition game. However, two weeks later, the United States pulled off the greatest upset in the history of sports in the 20, 20th century. Herb Brooks was our coach. This guy, well, he was pretty controversial in the way he pushed players to the limit. He also had specific players that he would grab hold of their talents. And he wouldn't, oftentimes he wouldn't take the best player, but how that, that player fit 
in the puzzle or pieces of his hybrid hockey system that he knew would beat the Russians. And he had some great quotes. Herb Brooks, just Google Herb Brooks quotes. Do that after the sermon. Um, he said, you're playing the worst and worse. You're playing worse and worse every day, and right now you're playing like it's next month. He said, risk something or forever sit with your dreams. He said, my recruiting key is I, like, I look for people first, athletes second. And he said, I wanted people with a sound value system. As you cannot buy values. And he says, you're only as good as your values. So what's that, what, what did he say to them on the threshold of that game 40 years ago? Let's watch this clip from Disney's movie, Miracle, and Kurt Russell plays Herb Brooks. Let's take a look at this. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. <laughs> that makes me want to go charge hell with a squirt gun, man. <laughs> ooh, ooh, evil. Wow. Love it. Great moments are born with great opportunity. And you see this opportunity like Esther, a woman of beauty and courage. And she utilizes an instrument in God's hand to take that courage and make a stand and risk. To do it and go. And so Esther has to make, and she has to make a decision. And she knows what she must do to save her people. And her message and correspondence back to Mordecai is, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat, drink for three days, three nights, or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
And after three days of fasting, Esther puts her royal robes and and stands at the inner court of the palace. And powerful King Xerxes is sitting on his throne. And he saw Esther and, and he holds out his gold scepter. And she approaches and touch, touches the tip. Eventually, Esther helps King Xerxes seize, see Haman's deception and personal vendetta against Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews. At a banquet, King Xerxes asks his queen, what does she desire? And Esther replies that someone has plotted to destroy her, her people. And she names Haman as the culprit. Immediately, King sentences Haman to the gallows. And the last chapter, chapter 10 of Esther, only three verses, is filled with celebration. And Mordecai now becomes the prime minister of Persia. And you see these underdogs, these Jews, rise. And as a result, they're saved. This day, they commemorate a celebration called the Feast of Purim. At this year, it's sundown, actually sundown, March 9th and 10th. And as they read the book of Esther, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, they hiss and they make sounds so that his name can't be heard. You know, the book of Esther really doesn't mention God. However, we see God intervening in the upper story, what looks like disaster. In the lower story, he is advancing his ultimate theme to redeem his people. And God is working through the instruments of his people. And as people of influence, we are to prepare to go boldly and risk for the kingdom like Esther does. I don't think God's calling you to put your life on the line. But God calls calls for his people not to be passive participants in the problem, but but active partners in the mission to be the church. We shouldn't be afraid at all. Each of us has a shared ministry, a shared ministry, Christ-like. And listen to this. We have an opportunity to make our lives modern-day translations of the gospel. Each one of us, each one of us in leadership. There's a crisis of spiritual leadership in this world, my friends. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be not afraid to try. That was Esther. I'm told that the, there's Chinese characters for a crisis are two characters. One means danger and one means opportunity. And when life threatens us with danger, it also affords us wonderful opportunities to have eternal impact upon another's life through you. There are those who have deep heartache. And they don't know what to do. They have no idea. They don't know to whom to turn. Each one of us is called to be a bridge. The bridge, stand in the gap between God and people who are struggling. Last night after, at the candlelight service on the men's retreat, I'm a spiritual director for the Walk to Emmaus, um, I, I told the men in the congregation after this beautiful candlelight service, I said, is there anything greater than the body of Christ loving on behalf of Christ? Think about that just for a second. It's one of the most powerful lines of that retreat. 
And like St. Paul, Esther, and Mordecai, we are called to be loving, sacrificial people at all times doing risky kingdom acts. And God desires to use you as an influencer every day to make Christ real for people at a time such as this. Folks, you were born for a time such as this. You were. You are. You're here. You're born to be God's beloved in this time, in this city of Cincinnati right now. And, and so we have to ask our quest, these questions. What on earth am I doing for heaven's sake? What am I doing that matters in the light of eternity? What investment am I making in people that will make a difference when I'm gone? Have I discovered something worth living for? Or have I discovered, more importantly, something worth dying for? Esther didn't care what Xerxes would do. And you see that in that statement. It took a long time for me not to care what other people think when I share my faith about Jesus to them. And it's in DNA of us as Christians. It's injected in our blood from the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And our heartbeat pumps that we were born for this. You were born to be a Christian. You were born to follow Jesus Christ. You were born to be an influence for eternal king, kingdom purposes. Go out there. Do it. Romans 10, as Paul proclaims this and testified about his life to preach the good news, he said, Romans 10, 14, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And it's not just the ministry of the pastor. There's a priesthood of all believers. You are priests in ministry, partnered with Christ, yoked with Christ, equipped to go out and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the influence. And it's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God coming on earth. And we have to rally around that. We need godly influencers in our nation right now. Darkness needs light. Jesus calls us the light of the world. And we have to stand up for what is right. And we have to be in partnership battling in injustice and oppression for a time such as this. In our workplaces, in our neighborhood, in our schools. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, send us. Give us squirt guns. No, give us living water from you. Because there are those who hunger and thirst. And we, we are those who can nourish and refresh, refresh in this world as we're filled with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your empowerment to make us, inform us into influencers. And thank you for Esther and Mordecai in the way that you work behind the scenes. And all God's people said, amen.